Hello there, folks. Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Moore, and I'd like to thank you very much for joining me once again to take a deep dive into this interesting thing that we call the conservative media bubble. Now, I'll bet a lot of you are wondering where I've been these last three weeks. And first off, I want to apologize because obviously I haven't been doing regular podcasts like I promised, but there's a reason for that, and it's not because I've been sick. Although I did get sick one of those weeks and couldn't do an episode anyway. But the more important thing that's been happening in the last few weeks is that the conservative bubble has just mostly fallen silent on major political issues. And I think the reason for this is because when the insurrection happened, a lot of the folks in the bubble kind of just took a step back and said, whoa. Like, we're all for making up our own facts to fit our viewpoints and trying to push those viewpoints on people. But the second we have to reap what we sow from these viewpoints, no way, baby. We are not having any part of that. So, as I said in the last episode, after the insurrection, most of the bubble kind of distanced themselves or tried to distance themselves from it. And for the last few weeks, for the most part, all they've been talking about is just regular news stories. It's almost been refreshing, really, because I've been going on conservative media, you know, every day for the last three, four weeks. And it's just mostly been stuff about what Biden's doing. Maybe a couple of backhanded snide remarks about why he's doing it or what it might entail. But for the most part, it's just been pretty straight, solid news reporting all around, even on sites like Breitbart and One America, and of course, places like The Federalist that are just straight up opinion sites, obviously they're still at it, but we haven't really seen anything newsworthy or noteworthy from places like them, other than the occasional just Biden is going to turn the U.S. into a socialist country opinion piece. And even old reliable Fox News has been pretty tame as of late. With the notable exception, of course, of the big three, Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and Laura Ingram, who basically just go on their show each night and rant and rave about socialism and Democrats and how both are going to destroy our country and destroy our way of life. And they're coming for you. Be afraid. But I mean, we've seen this so many times before. It's such a normal thing in the bubble for this to be happening that I don't need to talk about it anymore other than to just say that it's happening. So with that in mind, I'm announcing a bit of a format change to the way I do this podcast. So rather than taking a weekly look at the way the bubble covers things, I'm basically just going to be taking a more reactionary approach from now on. And whenever a story breaks out that the bubble covers that I find interesting in either the way they cover it or in the story itself... That's when I'm going to be doing an episode of this podcast. And that's not to say I'm not going to be talking about some of the little things I watch. And that's not saying that I'm going to stop doing the weirdest thing I saw this week. Those things will all stay. But because, for lack of a better term, the bubble is not really cooperating with me right now. I'm going to make this, like I said, more of a reactionary podcast to current events. So it could happen once every couple of weeks. It could happen multiple times a week. It just all depends on what happens in the world and how the bubble reacts to it. So for those of you who were hoping I'd go back to weekly podcasts, I apologize, but 
my sources are not cooperating with me right now. So until further notice, that's how things are going to be. But luckily for us, this week, something did happen that the bubble wanted to keep its eye on. And that was the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Now, to give you a little bit of background, the House actually submitted articles of impeachment, I believe, exactly a week after the Capitol riots happened. And basically saying that Trump incited the mob not only with his speech, but with the rhetoric that he'd used over the past year or so to try and undermine the result of the election. And I'm going to get into that as we go along in the trial process. But in the meantime, before I do that, I'll just real quickly go through how the bubble covered the initial announcement of this impeachment and how they reacted to the way it was happening. So Fox predictably had Hannity come on and call it a snap impeachment. And that was a very popular buzzword that the big three tended to use throughout the whole process. The snap impeachment. It's moving too fast. And also, didn't Biden promise unity? He's going to spend his first 30 days not confirming, not pandemicking, but doing this stupid impeachment. But the problem with this argument is twofold. So first off, Biden has already said and had already said before the impeachment went through that he was concerned about how having to do this impeachment rather than the actual business of running the government would definitely impact what he wanted to do with regards to COVID relief. And secondly, calling it a snap impeachment, I mean, it's an impeachment. There's nothing snap about it other than the fact that the Capitol riots happened and we wanted to immediately address it. So the problem with that argument is that saying that it's a snap impeachment and because of that it's invalid tells you that part of their argument is that, oh, it happened too fast. We need to stop and think about what happened. I'm thinking, what's there to think about? We had a radical, violent, angry, pro-Trump mob smash in the windows of one of our most hallowed institutions of democracy and try to take it over and kill lawmakers. I mean, I don't know what else we need to think about other than addressing the problem, which the impeachment obviously tried to do. So... Uh, Hannity's point, really, was that he said, we don't change the rules based on urgency. And I would say, no, but this is an urgent matter that needs to be addressed. Because a violent mob almost overtaking our institution of government, I'd say that's pretty urgent. I'd say that is definitely a very urgent issue that needs to be immediately addressed. Yes, with impeachment, if necessary. And of course, they had on a bunch of different guests that week, basically saying that the people who stormed the Capitol acted of their own volition, and while Trump exercised poor judgment with his words, he's not responsible for what they did. Now, the problem with this is that arguments like this, basically saying that it was the result of a couple of bad actors and everyone else kind of just followed along, these arguments set a dangerous precedent. Because it would imply that Trump's fighting words were not fighting words at all. It was just protected political speech. And this was actually one of the main arguments that they used in the trial. But that's to say that Trump is just another guy. He could have just been another dude in the crowd shouting angry words. And it was going to happen anyway. And I would argue that no, 
this would not have happened if Trump had not told them to fight like hell. And for months before that, said that the election was stolen. Well, stole it from us. And painted this entirely false narrative about how the Democrats and Dominion and George Soros and Hugo Chavez, I'm not even going to get into it. But the point is that people believed it because he's the president. And to quote Joe Biden, the words of a president matter. More so than probably any other person on the face of the earth, the words of a president matter. And so if those words that the president says are telling people to fight like hell or they're not going to have a country anymore. Yeah, they're going to go to the Capitol and fight like hell. And the fact that he said peacefully and patriotically once in the speech does not excuse both the, I believe, around 20 or 21 times he used more violent language like fight like hell and the months beforehand of telling people that the election was stolen and that he needed their help to stop the steal. And the thing about the Trump mob is they're very fickle. They don't think for themselves, really. And that's not a knock on Trump voters in general. It's a knock on the people who stormed the Capitol. Because I am well aware that not all 73 million people who voted for Trump wanted the Capitol stormed. Not all 73 million people who voted for Trump think the election was stolen, although I think around 80% of them did. But the fact that even after the Capitol riots and the reaction they got, there were still armed protests being planned in all 50 state capitals for Joe Biden's inauguration tells me that this is not just about one speech that Donald Trump made. This is about years of pushing a false narrative that the media is wrong, that you can only believe what the bubble tells you and what the bubble is telling you right now is that the vote was stolen from you. And obviously, if people think that their votes were stolen and that their votes don't matter, they're going to get angry. They're going to get violent. And let me also reiterate really quickly that these armed protests that they were talking about, A, most of them either didn't happen or weren't significant. But B, more importantly, they're not armed protests. There's no such a thing as armed protests. There are protests, and if you bring guns to a protest, as far as I'm concerned, it's no longer a protest, it's terrorism. Because what is terrorism except violence or the threat of violence towards political ends? But anyway, the bubble had interesting reactions to this impeachment being brought up, and one of them was that the Democrats and the Republicans who voted to impeach him are impeaching him because they're afraid of Trump. Not just because of the threat of violence, but because they're afraid of the 73 million voters who voted for Donald Trump in the general election. And the point that they made, and this was, I believe, on one of the mainstream sort of actual news shows rather than the big three. The guy said, and I quote, those people who don't live on the coasts or in the cities they're the real America. And it's interesting that they say this because while it's clear that Fox definitely condemned what happened at the Capitol for the most part, they're still trying really hard to appeal to that Trumpian demographic that they seem to be losing to places like Newsmax and One America. And in fact, they're trying so hard to appeal to this demographic 
that they're actually going to be getting rid of their 4 p.m. news hour and instead replacing it with rotating opinion programming. Because they're losing to Newsmax and even CNN now in news ratings, and these opinion shows that you see on places like Newsmax are now taking away the young demographic. And I mean, Fox News was already pretty much in old people's domain for the most part, but they're trying really hard to be hip and new and young, and they want that demographic back. So now they're going to just give you more of what you want, which is just Tucker-esque spouting of bubble stuff. But anyway, moving on to some of the more interesting reactions to the impeachment, we have first up Representative Tom McClintock from my home state of California. He said that if we had prosecuted BLM and Antifa in the same manner that we're prosecuting these Capitol riots, none of this would have happened. He said that it was a lunatic fringe group that did the Capitol riots and not the MAGA crowd. So basically, he's saying that the Capitol riots were actually a false flag attack perpetrated by Black Lives Matter and Antifa to embarrass Trump and take power away from the GOP. That's a sound theory there, Tom. Let's see if it pays off. Next up, Andy Biggs, who just straight up got on the Trump train and rolled along with it even through the Capitol riots, saying, you will not stop the Trump train. It will only grow stronger from what's happened. And he also gave us a warning, saying that we should not attempt to douse the remaining embers of this movement with gasoline. And I'm not sure what he means by that, other than to say that the impeachment of Trump might embolden them to do more things. But I already talked about in my last episode how the riots at the Capitol might actually empower the Trump mob to do more things because most of them considered it a success. But thankfully, that didn't come to pass and the impeachment trial went on just about as you would expect. So anyway, my favorite reaction from the bubble to the Capitol riots and the impeachment afterwards goes to Ken Buck. And Ken Buck is a Trump Republican congressman from Colorado, and he basically said that the reason the Capitol riots happened, first off, he doesn't think it was a riot, he thinks it was an uprising, and that the reason they happened was because Americans were frustrated when the FBI was investigating Trump's campaign. He went on a rant about all of Trump's grievances, so the dead people voting, the Dominion ballots, the fact that it was a socialist plot, he went through all of this I believe this was on just a regular Fox News show that I was watching and they were interviewing him on. He even cited socialist Hollywood as an example of why the Capitol riots were justified. And yes, he said that they were justified, which is completely crazy and absolutely scary that someone who was in the Capitol at the time it was happening thought that these riots were good and justified. And he didn't get to finish because the host actually cut him off because what he was saying was so nuts. But if he had get to finish, my guess is that he would have said something like real America's frustration with the Democrats is why this happened. And so to him, I say shame on you and shame on anyone who thought this was a good thing. And I'm not going to go into it any further than that. I'm just going to move on to Infowars, who said that Trump had one week left to save America because this was at the point where Trump only had one week left in his presidency. 
And so InfoWars, after initially condemning the violence at the Capitol, did a complete 180 and called it a false flag attack and saying that the DOJ and FBI would be unleashed on Trump supporters once Biden got into office. And of course, that didn't actually happen. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) But I did take a couple of notes on Tucker the night that the impeachment was announced, and he barely mentioned it except in his opening statement. And he had a warning for the 10 GOP congressmen who voted to impeach Trump, saying that they should be ready for a primary challenge in 2022, and that the goal of this impeachment wasn't to impeach Trump, but to shame Trump voters and prevent him from making a comeback in 2024. To which I say, well, yeah, that's exactly what they want to accomplish with this impeachment. And I'm 100% for that because I think Trumpism is the worst thing that's happened to this country politically in my lifetime. And, you know, I'm 32 years old, so I've lived through some pretty crazy stuff. I lived through swift boating. I lived through the Tea Party. I lived through Bush versus Gore. I remember that very well. So... As far as crazy things that I've seen happen to this country politically, Trumpism is definitely at the top of that list. It's one of those things that I sort of felt like I saw it coming, but at the same time, I didn't realize just how nuts it would get. So I really hope that even with the impeachment ending now with Trump being acquitted, that all the lawsuits that we're inevitably going to see in civil court will help keep him out of the race in 2024. So anyway, a couple more reactions to the impeachment proceedings before I move on to the impeachment itself. And first off, we have Lindsey Graham, who said at the time that it shouldn't happen because it would tear the GOP apart. And actually, I'd say that's probably the most accurate statement I've ever heard him make, because even before the impeachment happened, the GOP was already being torn apart from the people who believed in Donald Trump's election fraud and the people who didn't or didn't want to. And it seems even now, with the rift fully exposed after the impeachment trial, that Republicans are much more concerned with not looking weak and keeping the party together than they are with whether or not Trump actually did anything wrong. But I mean, that's nothing new. This is behavior we've seen from the GOP from the start. So... Anyway, moving on to Newsmax, they spent the days since the impeachment singing the praises of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I will definitely get into later on in this podcast, and Senator Hawley, who had the raised fist to the pro-Trump mob before they stormed the Capitol, calling them Republicans who are willing to fight for the actual American people. Again, appealing to those rural mid-country folks who don't know any better. And Newsmax even expressed optimism in Trump possibly forming his own Patriot Party, saying that if the GOP has to splinter, so be it. And if I hadn't said it before on this podcast, I will say it now. I am 100% okay with this idea because it's going to split the GOP vote in two and give the Democrats a much better chance at winning in 2022 and 2024. So Trump, if by any chance you're listening to this podcast... Please, I beg you, form your own political party. But they also took the time to bash Fox News, saying that Chris Wallace calling 
uh, Biden's inauguration address the best that he's ever seen shows just how far to the left they've gotten. That's right. Newsmax is calling Fox News a left-wing organization. This is where we are, folks. The bubble has now officially split into two. If it wasn't clear before, it certainly is now. You have your Trump-publican bubble on one side and your reasonist bubble on the other side, although the reasonist bubble is shrinking by the day and sort of turning into a less slightly crazy amalgamation of the Trump bubble. So anyway, that was the initial reaction of the bubble to the impeachment. So now I'm just going to dive right into the impeachment itself. So I'm going to start with the coverage that they had the night before it started, because I think it's important to see what expectations the bubble had about this trial before it actually started and to sort of compare that with how it actually went. So we begin with Tucker Carlson, who in his opening didn't even mention that it was happening once. Instead, he opened with a story combining all of the boogeymen that the red meat of the conservative party hates illegal aliens, COVID restrictions, and defunding of ICE. And this story was made complete by a guest he had on at the end of the segment, who I can only describe as the most Texas person I have ever seen in my life. He was, I believe, the sheriff of a small southern border town in Texas, and he had the most extraordinarily thick American Southern accent I've ever heard in my life. He was wearing a 10-gallon hat and one of them cowboy jackets and had himself a nice little yee-haw attitude. And he concluded the segment by making lots of thinly-veiled racist attacks on Mexicans and black people, saying stuff like the crime rate had exploded since all these Mexican immigrants had come in, and that the last time we saw something like this was when the black man Obama was president from 08 to 16. I mean, (laughs) I'm not making this up. This is what Tucker decided to talk about instead of the impeachment trial. And he chose to ignore it so willfully that he even had a cut briefly to a daily caller correspondent who I guess was working for Fox at the time. And this correspondent was on the ground near the Capitol where all the troops were. And Tucker straight up asked him, why are they still here? And the daily caller correspondent responded, There is no reason for them to be here. So not because there's an impeachment trial going on for the president whose words sparked the riot that caused those troops to be there in the first place. You don't want to mention that at all. He basically just completely ignored that it was happening for his entire show. And he instead decided to have on a guest for a big chunk of his show. His name was Russ Vaught. He was the former OMB chair under Trump. And under profession, it didn't say that, though. It said, Founder, Center for American Restoration. So, you know me. I get very curious when I see something, some sort of buzzword like that, that I haven't heard of before. So I decided to go ahead and look up the Center for American Restoration. And as far as I can tell, there is no nonprofit or even political action group that I'm aware of that I could find named Center for American Restoration. 
Instead, when I searched for it on Google, it took me to his personal website, Russ Vought's website. And all it is is just a single page, which gives you a link to a mailing list, and it links to an op-ed that he wrote in The Federalist. So naturally, I followed the chain and read the op-ed that he wrote for The Federalist. And in this op-ed, he basically says that the fight Trump started with the Capitol riots and with the Stop the Steal movement must continue, and he's founding the Center for American Restoration to that end. He laments that the establishment has forgotten God and governs without a Judeo-Christian worldview. He says, and I quote directly from the article here, God is excluded, and faith has become a predominantly private matter. It is no longer acceptable for conservatives to argue as citizens or elected officials from a Judeo-Christian worldview. This exclusive focus on the material needs of human beings has obscured much of the difference between the right and the left. Now, first off, I have no clue what he's talking about with obscuring the difference between the right and left because religion isn't part of the issue. But what he's saying, and I have much more of a problem with that, is that the government needs to focus on spiritual solutions, religious Judeo-Christian solutions to real-world problems. And I just want you to think about for a second how insane that idea sounds. We talk about these religious countries, like in the Middle East, these Muslim republics and places like Iran, where it's straight up a theocracy. Those are the countries that inform their political decisions through religious beliefs. Those are the countries that the Republicans are always railing against. And if you ask me, I think it's more because they're Muslim than because they're theocracy. Because it seems like the GOP wants a theocracy in some ways. They want Christianity to be the official religion of the United States. You remember the whole thing in Borat when he goes to the... uh, evangelist show we were a christian nation in the beginning we were a christian nation now and we will always be a christian nation until the good lord returns except if you read the constitution strictly by the words as the gop say they like to do america is not a christian nation it says so right in the first amendment congress shall make no law regarding freedom of religion and when we say freedom of religion We don't mean freedom of Christianity. We certainly don't mean freedom of Protestantism or evangelicalism. We mean all religions, all creeds, all beliefs, not just the ones that the majority of the country shares. And actually, believe it or not, there is a rapidly rising in number minority of people who either are not religious Or choose not to follow a mainstream religion. And who are we to say that they're wrong? Who are we to say that we have to make our policies based on our religion and not yours? Who are we to say that you need to abide by the rules that our God sets or else you're not a real American? I mean, just the possibilities of where they could go with an idea like this are absolutely insane and we've already seen a lot of it in places like iran where there's just so much oppression and social backwardness 
because they tie their state to their religion. But anyway, I'm getting on a bit of a tangent here, so let me just move on to the rest of this article. So, Mr. Vaught concludes the article with a list of policy goals that he has for the Center for American Restoration that he's planning on creating. And some of these are pretty interesting. One of them is making pro-life the official policy of the USA. And not only that, going even further and encouraging people to have more babies. That's right, folks. In a world where overcrowding and overpopulation and dwindling resources and people going hungry is a major problem and will become even more of a major problem in the next few decades, we want to have more babies because that's what God wants. He also proposes eliminating voting by mail, obviously, because it's rife with fraud and completely controlled by the Democrats and they can do what they want with it. He proposes ending government subsidies in any beneficial institution because that's the church's job. They're the ones that are supposed to help the poor and the sick, not the government. And finally, he calls for an America first immigration policy. Which, of course, is completely antithetical to itself, because if we were truly America first and only, there would be no immigration policy. We'd just kick everybody out who wasn't American. But anyway, moving on back to the impeachment, this was not what Tucker talked about or chose to mention at all on his show. Instead, apparently, they decided to give that to Hannity who immediately went on and talked about the sham trial and how Maxine Waters and Kamala Harris have also incited insurrection with their language. He asks, what's the difference between the two? And he shows a couple of clips of Kamala saying some insightful things like, we need to fight for our right and we need to, you know, not back down and we need to be vocal and angry and make our voices heard, that kind of thing. So... Yes, there was a couple of fights in there, but he asks, what's the difference between what she said and what Trump said? And I can answer that pretty easily with one word, context. Was there insightful language in the speech she showed from Kamala, or at least that part of it? Yeah, maybe a little bit. But comparing that to what Trump said in his speech before the Capitol riots doesn't take into account what had already happened. Like I said, context. Trump, and this is what the Democratic side argued as one of their main points in the impeachment trial, had been gathering this energy for months before the riot happened. The reason it happened at all was because Trump refused to accept the election and pushed a false narrative that it was stolen. This wasn't simply a case of free political speech being taken out of context, but rather the culmination of months' worth of inflammatory language. But now I'm sort of getting into the meat and potatoes of the trial itself, so I'm going to go ahead and just switch gears directly to the first day of the trial. And as it began, Fox basically had a bunch of people on that said, this is nothing, this is going nowhere, it's a joke. And ample discussion among the news hosts, this was not the big three, of how unconstitutional it was for them to impeach a former president. Which, of course, later that day, they voted that it actually was. And they also talked about how it was a snap impeachment, as uh, Hannity had said. 
and how it could be used to get rid of political enemies, which I guess there is a little bit of a point to that. But the problem is in order to have a snap impeachment like that and for it to work, you need two thirds of the Senate to agree with you. And as I like to say, a lot of the time, you couldn't get two thirds of Americans to agree that the sun comes up in the morning. So anyway, one of the more interesting things was during this sort of pre-trial phase that they had on Fox News, they actually presented the other side of the constitutionality of the trial. So that was probably the first time I had ever seen Fox actually present an opposing viewpoint on their network. It was actually uh, quite surreal, to be honest with you. I was watching and they had someone on who basically was saying, but the Democrats could cite these two times that we've actually impeached people after they had been out of office. And I was just like, huh, are they actually presenting opposing viewpoints in a somewhat similar light to the ones that they support? It was the first and only time I've ever seen anyone in the bubble actually present a Democratic viewpoint. It was very interesting. And then, of course, when Tucker came on later that day, he just went into this diatribe about how the trial is a purposeful distraction by the Democrats from the fact that the vaccine isn't backed by science. And I'm sitting here expecting some sort of, you know, what happened today on the trial. And Tucker goes into this thing about anti-vaxxers like, wait a minute, what? But he kept going. Tucker lamented the loss of the COVID vaccine injury stories Facebook group and used that as an excuse to launch into a bunch of anti-vax conspiracy theories, after which he actually said, and I quote, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but these are legitimate questions that we have to ask about this vaccine. And of course, not to mention that the COVID vaccine injury stories was pretty much completely made up of anti-vaxxers. So if you've been paying attention to my podcast at all over the last six, seven months, you'll notice that whenever I talk about someone like Tucker or Hannity, there's kind of a formula that the Fox pundits always use to push controversial viewpoints. And I was actually turned on to this by a Reddit thread that I read, I believe, in the politics subreddit. So I forget the person's username who pointed this out, but thank you for that. And basically, the formula works like this. I'm all for blank, but the Democrats are blank, so we need blank. And when we plug this formula into what Tucker was saying, it fits perfectly. I'm all for vaccinations, but Democrats want to silence anti-vaxxers, so we need an investigation into Democratic corruption with Big Pharma. And his reasoning for this is not so much that he agrees with the anti-vaxxers, he straight up says, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but it's the very fact that we're taking away their voices that's the issue. Basically, it's a red herring. He's making the issue about a completely different issue than the issue that he wants to talk about. And it seems like it's a pretty common way that the bubble likes to sort of sneak in these fringe viewpoints into the mainstream. They sort of disguise it as an issue about something else. This isn't an issue about anti-vaxxers. It's an issue about free speech. 
This isn't an issue about whether or not it was an insurrection at the Capitol. It's an issue about free speech. Basically just packaging these fringe movements into a more palatable version that more moderate Republicans can agree to without having to say that they take on extremist views. This is how the bubble normalizes these views and why, in essence, the bubble has been moving steadily to the right for the last 10 years. Because it really started with the Tea Party when they basically took what was, in essence, a racist movement because we now had a black president and basically said, oh, it's not about the black president. It's about the fact that there's too many taxes, even though the fact is that the U.S. is one of the lowest tax industrialized nations in the world. But that didn't matter. The point was that they were packaging this racist rhetoric in a way that normal Republicans could maybe not quite agree with it, but sort of just go along with it and say, yeah, that's a legitimate point. We are taxed too much. And that sort of marked the entry point for fringe movements in mainstream Republican politics. And it's only gotten more and more, shall we say, extreme from there. Until now, you have four out of five Republicans believing that the election was stolen, even though not only is there no evidence to that claim, there are mounds of evidence contradicting it. But it doesn't matter, because this is what they believe now. And bringing this back to what Tucker was talking about, he basically said in his argument that they, meaning the Democrats, were trying to censor real legal conversation about the effects of the vaccine. And my response to this is, no, we are not censoring conversation about the vaccine. We've had that conversation. We've done research and it has been irrefutably proven that the vaccine is highly effective and safe to use for the vast majority of people. What they are censoring is misinformation from anti-vaxxers, which is where the COVID vaccine horror stories group came from. It was all anti-vaxxers. And to say that they should have as legitimate of a voice in how the vaccine is distributed and what should be done with it is just wrong because they are getting their information not from studies, not from actual real conversation, as Tucker would call it, but from the perpetuation of misinformation. This misinformation spreads like wildfire specifically because it's misinformation. And I've already been through why this happens on previous episodes. And as if to further my point, he had Glenn Greenwald on who said, tech companies don't want to do the censoring because it diminishes their customer base. Which I guess he has a point that it wouldn't make sense for tech companies to censor things that would grow their viewer base. In fact, that's part of the reason why we have this problem is because Facebook and Twitter and websites like that didn't do enough to combat misinformation. And now we have this massive problem where people believe these things that aren't true, despite the fact that there are facts that disprove it. But while he did make a good point with that, he went on right afterwards to say that it was the fault of CNN and NBC who threatened them, the tech companies, 
and make them play ball to push the narrative that they want. So what you're saying is that big tech is controlled by CNN? (laughs) I can't even say that with a straight face. It makes no sense whatsoever. But anyway, moving on to the actual issue at hand here, the impeachment trial. It was just a gigantic distraction, and it's clear that Tucker didn't want to talk about it because if he showed anything from it, it would show the Democrats making a convincing argument and the Republicans, especially on that first day, basically just tripping and falling all over themselves. So anyway, real quickly, on Laura Ingram, they had Devin Nunes on, who basically said that security at the Capitol was the speaker's responsibility, and because of that, it's Pelosi's fault that the riots were as bad as they were. Just wanted to throw that in there for disinformation's sake. (laughs) So moving on to day two, that's when the actual trial started after they'd basically come to the conclusion that it was actually the right thing to do to have an impeachment trial for a not-sitting president. So the one thing that I did want to mention during the trial itself that happened here was Representative Raskin, who had the best analogy I've ever heard to describe what happened with both Trump's speech and the riot that it incited. So he sort of alluded to the old fire in a crowded theater analogy of the reason why completely free speech can't be protected by the Constitution. You know, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And so... He said something that really sort of explained it better than I ever could. So I'm just going to go ahead and repeat it here. So he said, quote, This case is so much worse than someone who falsely shouts fire in a crowded theater. It's more like a case where the town fire chief, who's paid to put out fires, sends a mob not to yell fire in a crowded theater, but to actually set the theater on fire. And who then, when the fire alarms go off and the calls start flooding into the fire department asking for help, does nothing but sit back, encourage the mob to continue its rampage, and watch the fire spread on TV with glee and delight. So then we say this fire chief should never be allowed to hold this public job again. And I could not have said this better myself. Trump sent his mob, and let's be clear, Trump said many times in the speech, and the Democrats pointed this out, we're going to march down to Pennsylvania Avenue, fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore unless you fight back. And the fact that he said peacefully and patriotically once, like I said earlier, does not excuse all the other inflammatory language that he used both in this speech and earlier. And that was the point that the Democrats made throughout their portion of the trial. So... While the trial was going on, they had former Trump advisor Jason Miller on Fox saying that the Democrats' argument is hypocritical because they can't both say that Trump incited the mob and that it was also planned. And this actually is a pretty valid point, and that was one of my main concerns with what the Democrats would do in this trial, that they had to prove both that it was a planned event, which FBI and whatnot research is now showing that it was, and that Trump incited the mob to go and storm the Capitol, which, of course, he did. But convincing GOP senators to go against their own party and agree with that assessment 
it's a tall task. And I knew from the beginning that they probably wouldn't be able to do it. And then they started getting into it with the Democrats, saying that there's plenty of evidence of Democrats getting rowdy and violent from over the summer, even against other Democrats. And yet again, this is them comparing the Capitol rally to Black Lives Matter and saying it really wasn't that bad. And the defense would actually make this same argument a couple of days later. But I've already gone through this, and my response to that argument is that A, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations were not violent in the vast majority of cases, and B, they weren't at the Capitol. They were not trying to bring down the government of the United States. They were just trying to get equal treatment for black people by police officers and in society at large. They were not trying to stop the government of the United States from certifying an election. That is the difference. Again, context. Context is important. And according to the defense, context is irrelevant. So anyway... The impeachment manager's case was very well done. I applaud them for doing as well as they did, even though it didn't work. And it must have felt that way for Fox News, because as soon as the dinner break came around, Fox devoted all of its time to talking about other things other than the impeachment. First chance they got during the dinner break, they didn't mention the impeachment at all, and they talked about other stories such as the Zoom cat filter mishap from the Texas lawyer. They also talked about Tom Brady tossing the Super Bowl trophy to Gronk from boat to boat and almost dropping it. And they spent so long talking about little trivial fun stories like these, they were actually talking about it while the trial was still ongoing. Like literally after they got back from dinner break, they were still talking about it for a good 20, 30 minutes before they finally switched back to the impeachment trial and said, oh, yeah, they're back, by the way. So it's clear to me that Fox and the bubble in general didn't want to focus on this impeachment trial that much because they knew how bad it made Trump look. And by definition, the bubble. So Breitbart, though, had an interesting take on it after the second day. Front and center in their main page was an Ann Coulter article with a, quote, nation-unifying impeachment solution. She thought that the GOP should offer to convict Trump in return for Democrats agreeing to fund the wall. Quote, Trump is a selfish, ignorant child, but he is not responsible for reactions of neurotic liberals. And, of course, I fail to see what one has to do with the other. But that's Ann Coulter logic for you. She basically just takes any chance she gets to bash liberals as hard as she can. So in response to her proposal to fund the wall to convict Trump. No, that's not happening. And she wants to unify the country by doing that. But the border wall is almost as contentious of an issue as the Capitol riots, because when you talk about the border wall, you're also talking about the internment camps that we have for illegal immigrants and separation of children from their families. And you get into some real rocky territory when you talk about that. So it's definitely a far cry from the unifying solution for Democrats and Republicans that Ann Coulter presents it as. So your heart's in the right place. I do appreciate that you called Trump a man child, which of course he is, but maybe you want to rethink your proposal. 
So anyway, moving on to One America, they had an interview up front and center on their homepage with a so-called expert who claims that Antifa was behind the riot and not Trump supporters. The article stated that he had years of experience studying Antifa tactics. So I watched the whole interview and here's a few of the highlights. His name is Michael Yan. He is a war correspondent. That's all they said. They didn't say who he worked for or what kind of work he'd done. And he says that Antifa was in Hong Kong and the same tactics were in use at the Capitol. Says whenever he goes anywhere, he's automatically looking for false flags. Red flag number one. If you're always looking for something out of place, you will probably find something even if it's not. So his reasoning of why Antifa was behind this was that people from the back were sending up masks, water, and first aid up to the front where all the Capitol riots were. He says Antifa did all this. And when he's looking for false flags like this, he says, and I quote, they're like a Starbucks, they're everywhere. And then came my personal favorite part of it. The interviewer asked, when you go to events like these and the one in Hong Kong, how often do you see these tactics and how long do you think it's been happening? And he says, this is old, old stuff. It's like karate. It's been around forever. And I just had to laugh at that because as someone who practiced karate for years, I can tell you that karate has not been around forever. It was actually first officially practiced in the late 1800s after Japan annexed Okinawa. (laughs) So just a little uh, tidbit of fun information for you there. And just the nerve this guy has to call himself an expert while basically just saying, oh, I saw these things happening that happen at pretty much every protest or demonstration or riot even and saying that it's Antifa. And because he saw that specific thing, that means that no one's at fault, not even Trump and maybe even especially not Trump. So I just wanted to point out the stupidity of that argument and the fact that it was being carried as a front page main story by One America and move along to day three. And there wasn't much to report on day three because it was mostly just more of the same that we saw in day two. We had the impeachment managers making their case against Trump and Fox and company just trying to deflect and distract. So during this portion, they had one of Trump's lawyers shown on Fox News as a guest. And he had a comment that just made me kind of look twice like what he said. And I quote, This is what you get when you have entertainment companies putting out a product. Now, I'm not quite sure what he meant by that. I think what he was trying to say is that the Democrats are putting on a show trial to make Trump look bad. But I don't really get where the entertainment companies come into this. And actually, when we get to day four, I'm going to talk a little bit about entertainment value because the defense definitely tried to use some of that to make their case. So anyway, going to the anchors on Fox during the trial, one of the arguments that they tried to make was that you have to look at the intent and not so much at the resulting actions. So basically what they were saying is that Trump, while his words may have inflamed and incited the mob to violence, he didn't mean them that way. And that, again, was one of the arguments that the defense would make the next day. But I just want to 
address that right now because I think it's a completely wrong and insane notion that someone couldn't be responsible for their actions because they didn't really mean to do it. And the example I like to use is, let's say I'm driving my car and there's a pedestrian in the street and it's dark at night. I don't see him and I hit him and kill him with my car. Now, the question that that argument raises is, am I responsible for hitting that person if I didn't mean to hit them? And under that logic, because I didn't mean to hit them with my car, I didn't intend to hit them with my car, but it happened anyway. That would imply I'm not responsible for hitting them with my car. As far as that argument is concerned, the person I hit with my car, their death is their fault because they were the ones in front of my car when I hit them. And I didn't intend to hit them with my car. So because it's not my fault, it must be theirs. Because Trump didn't intend to incite the mob, it must be the Democrats' fault that the mob stormed the Capitol. It must be Nancy Pelosi's fault because she didn't have good enough security and security is her responsibility. It must be Antifa's fault because Trump couldn't have possibly incited the mob because he didn't intend to. And I mean, we can talk all day about Trump's intent and whether or not he actually wanted to rile up the mob. And I mean, if you ask me from what we've seen of his reaction initially as the mob stormed the Capitol, he was delighted. He was ecstatic. So that alone, to me, signifies that his words, his intentions were indeed responsible for what happened. But aside from this, they mainly just tried to make more excuses for why Trump might get acquitted and his prospects for future office. And that's when Chris Wallace brought up a pretty good point. He said that the rules of impeachment only say that if he's convicted, he can't hold office anymore. It doesn't say anything about running for office. Even if he was convicted and barred from office, he could still run. He could still technically run for office again. And if anyone would take advantage of this loophole, it would be Donald Trump, in my opinion. So anyway, moving on to day four, when we finally heard from the defense. And it's pretty much exactly what we would have expected, that Trump did nothing wrong, that this whole impeachment trial is a witch hunt by the Democrats who did the same thing. And the interesting thing about the defense is that to sort of hammer this point home about the Democrats basically being as inflammatory as Trump, they used, I think it was like a 15 minute video of lots of out of context, completely just short little sound bites of Democrats saying things like, we need to fight, or we need to rise up, or we cannot let this stand. But the interesting thing, and this goes into the entertainment value I was talking about earlier, is they set the whole video to this epic, kind of tense-sounding background music. And because they did it this way, that video really played out more like a campaign ad or a super PAC ad than an actual defense of the president in an impeachment trial. Like, they paid for someone to put that background music in. This was an entertainment product. It was not meant as an impeachment defense. And I think part of that is because the defense lawyers knew that they didn't really have to do anything. 
They could have just said the defense rests and Trump would have been acquitted anyway. So it seems like rather than make an actual case to defend Trump, they just wanted to make a big media spectacle of it and try and point out the hypocrisy of the Democrats. And I've already explained why that's not the case. And then the other argument that they tried to make was that when Trump called the secretary of state in Georgia and told him to find the 11,000 votes he needed to win. When he said that, he didn't really mean the word find. Goes back to the old adage of depends on what your definition of the word is, is. And I've already been through why when he said find, he meant mafia style find. But they went on to question the validity of the election and the fact that there was fraud in Georgia. And I just found it incredible that Trump was actually able to find lawyers that brought that up during the impeachment trial that were willing to defend his now broadly debunked claims that there was election fraud. The defense said that they were concerned with the inexplicable concerning drop in his Georgia ballot win rates. Well, it's called mail-in voting, and it's a perfectly legal thing. He went on to talk about forged signatures, dumped ballots, and dead people voting. And then he said, the media and their Democratic allies refuse to talk about these kinds of things. Here we go again. And then he concluded his argument with, this is about canceling 75 million Trump voters and criminalizing their viewpoints. And that was it. The defense, I believe, barely lasted three or four hours. They had no other arguments to make because they knew they didn't have to make any other arguments. All they had to say was, Trump is innocent. You can't prove he's guilty. Dems are bad. Done. Of course, anyone with a brain watching the trial knew that that defense of Trump was full of blatant falsehoods, holes in their logic, and just overall not very well done. But it didn't matter because this is the bubble we're talking about. So Breitbart, One America, Infowars, The Federalist, Daily Caller, all of them had articles up basically saying that the defense actually killed it. They completely destroyed the hoax that Trump was responsible. And in the case of sites like Infowars, basically said, it's clear now that the Democrats and their Antifa allies were responsible for planning this false flag attack on the Capitol just so that they could get Trump. And the interesting thing, though, is that Fox actually had people on who agreed with the Democrats' assessment that Trump had been stoking the flames of this riot for months. And their logic, and these were Republicans talking, was, why did Trump not send in the National Guard to save his vice president? And the obvious answer to that is he didn't want to. And to me, that's really the scariest part of this whole thing is that Trump was literally willing to let his vice president, who had been loyal to him up until maybe that last week or so, like doggedly, unabashedly loyal to him, he was willing to let him die to the mob so that he could stop the steal. And I'm truly convinced at this point now that Trump does believe that the election was stolen from him. I don't think he's trying to put on a show. I think that's what he, in his deluded, unbelievably scrambled brain, actually believes. And this was confirmed for me during the Q&A session when the defense actually admitted that 
Trump at no point was informed about the VP danger. And they said it in a way that made it sound like he couldn't have known that Mike Pence was in danger, even though there's people outside of his door basically chanting his name and that they want to hang him. But the key word you want to pay attention to here is informed. According to them, no one told him that Pence was in danger. But according to reports of the day, he was watching the riot on TV ecstatic well before the Capitol had been evacuated. So it's clear that he was watching the TV when this was happening and knew exactly what was happening when it was happening. So when the Capitol was breached and Mike Pence had to be moved, he knew there was no way he couldn't have known that Pence was in danger. And instead of getting his vice president out, during this point when they were chanting hang Mike Pence outside the Capitol, he instead called senators to try and further overturn the election or delay it. So basic logic would indicate that he knew what was happening and chose not to address it. And interestingly, Alan Dershowitz, who was one of Trump's lawyers in the first impeachment trial, actually came on Newsmax later that night and said that the defense won handily, of course, because this is the bubble, we have to say that. But the closing argument wasn't effective. And his quote, and I thought it was interesting, was, lawyers have the hardest time sitting down and shutting up when they've won. And I mean, I don't think that's an inaccurate assessment of what happened. They basically made their argument that uh, Trump was innocent, that the Democrats had done the same thing, which is all well and good. It's all expected. And then as they closed, they went into another rant about how the election was invalid. There was fraud in Georgia, dumped ballots, dead people voting, Dominion, Hugo Chavez, all this stuff came back to the surface. And it's just like, you had one job, man. (laughs) But anyway, moving on to the final day of the trial. I didn't think, honestly, it would be the final day because I thought witnesses were going to be called. And at first, it looked like that was going to happen. But then suddenly they decided to not call witnesses. A complete 180 from what they planned on doing. And I've sort of thought about that a lot over the last few days. And I think the reason why the Democrats decided to pull back on calling witnesses was because Mitch McConnell or someone else in the Senate basically told them in no uncertain terms, if you call witnesses, we are going to drag this out for as long as possible. And when we do that, you're not going to be able to get anything else done. Because while the Senate is in an impeachment trial, they can't do any other business. So no laws will be passed. You won't see any legislation being made. And so that whole $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that Biden is trying to pass now, You wouldn't see that for probably at least a month. And by that time, the economy would be in such bad shape that it wouldn't be enough anymore. So I think that's the reason why the Democrats backed off. And honestly, I agree with them because even if they got all the witnesses they wanted, it was still a foregone conclusion that Trump was going to be acquitted. There's no way you were going to get 10 more than the seven that actually ended up voting to impeach him to go along with it. There's no way. The Republican is too tight-knit of a coalition, even if they're splitting in two at the moment. They still recognize that they need each other. The The two sides still need to form this tenuous alliance 
to keep a hold on what little power they have left in government. So anyway, witnesses didn't get called, the vote was counted, and it ended up being 57 to 43, Trump was acquitted. Not surprised, but definitely disappointed. But the interesting thing was that Fox, right after this happened, came on and said that this many Republicans voting guilty represents a stronger fissure in the party than before. And by before, I assume they meant the first impeachment. But they're 100% correct that there is now two different Republican parties. You have your Trump-publicans and you have your reasonists. And the Trump-publicans having the louder voice and the red meat of the base are the ones that control the party right now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few weeks as sort of the fallout from everything that's happened kind of comes crashing down on them and to see the bubble's reaction and whether or not different sites start taking sides. So in any case, they did say that the GOP will move beyond the Trump era. And I'm not so sure about that, but I hope they do. I would very much like a return to reason and compromise in governance And I hope that both sides, but the Republicans especially, because it seems like they are really not keen on compromising at all, I hope they see the light and realize that this country works way better when we work towards a common goal and try to compromise with each other and use our strengths as our strengths rather than trying to exploit the other side's weaknesses and trying to tug the whole country in one direction or the other. So I'm going to leave it on that nice little hopeful ray of sunshine. I hope you enjoyed my take on the bubble's coverage of Trump's second impeachment trial. And with that, we come finally to the weirdest thing that I saw this week. So if you've been paying attention at all to political news in the last couple of weeks, you probably already know who I'm going to give this award to. This week, the lucky winner is Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's a freshman congresswoman from Georgia, and she is, without a doubt, the absolutely craziest, most conspiracy theory-ridden politician I have ever seen in my life. And I'm not giving this award to her just for one thing. I'm giving it to her for all the things. Would you like to hear some of the things that she believes and some of the actions that she has endorsed in the past? Let's dive right in, shall we? In the past... Marjorie Taylor Greene has repeatedly indicated support for executing Democratic politicians, including Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama. She liked a Facebook comment advocating for a bullet to the head of Nancy Pelosi. And in April 2018, one commenter asked, now do we get to hang them? Referring to Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. In response, she said, and I quote, stage is being set. Players are being put in place. We must be patient. This must be done perfectly, or liberal judges would let them off. And Marjorie Taylor Greene's defense to these comments? It wasn't me. I don't run my own Facebook page. I have people do it for me. And sometimes they like and comment on things that don't align with my views. Well, if that's the case, then why didn't you delete those comments, Marjorie? If that was the case, then why didn't you come out immediately and say that wasn't me? My answer is because it probably was you. But we haven't even gotten into the good stuff yet. In addition to advocating for death against her political opponents, she also dabbles in conspiracy theories. 
For example, she's probably the highest profile member of what's called the QAnon Caucus in the United States Congress. Basically, there's a few Congress people, and she is among them, who believe that the world is being run by Satan-worshipping pedophiles and that Donald Trump is going to save them. Of course, when QAnon didn't get the result that they wanted and Biden became president, it threw the whole thing into disarray. But I could go into that another time. Another conspiracy theory that she engaged with is the Frazzledrip conspiracy. It contends that Hillary Clinton and her former aide Huma Abedin were videotaped sexually assaulting a child and then ripping off the child's face to wear as a mask in a satanic blood sacrifice. The theory then alleges that Clinton ordered an assassination hit against the police officer who found the footage. And this is according to the Washington Post, folks. I'm just reading directly from the article here. She also peddled in the 2017 Clinton Kill Lists conspiracy, which alleges that the Clintons have assassinated their associates and people who disagree with them. She spread disinformation that they were involved in sex trafficking and peddled the conspiracy that DNC staffer Seth Rich was not killed during attempted robbery, but murdered by Democratic actors. And in the words of every infomercial you've ever seen on TV, but wait, there's more! She is also a proponent of the Pizzagate conspiracy, no surprise there considering she's a QAnon member. She was also a 9-11 truther and claimed that there was no evidence a plane crashed into the Pentagon. But the gold medal, the piece de resistance, has to be, without a doubt, the Jewish space laser. So if you haven't heard of this, let me fill you in real quick. Marjorie Taylor Greene, a sitting member of the U.S. Congress, actually believes that the California wildfires last year were not due to natural causes or from the power grid, but instead were started by PG&E in conjunction with the Jews using a space laser that literally cooked the atmosphere and set the trees on fire in order to clear room for a high-speed rail project. That's right, folks. Those terrible wildfires that we had last year was because of a Jewish space laser. Hmm. Jewish space laser. I believe they're playing at Coachella next year. <laughs> but in all seriousness, this is the craziest, most mind-blowingly hilarious conspiracy theory I have ever seen in my life. And it's been promoted by a now-sitting member of Congress. You can't make this stuff up, folks. I just, I, I love what I do. I'm just going to put it that way. Just seeing things like this makes my day, warms my heart, touches me inside. Maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. But anyway, congratulations to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, by the way, the Republicans decided not to punish or even acknowledge that she had these beliefs. It just said, what's QAnon? Congratulations, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You and your conspiracy theories, and in particular, the Jewish space laser, was the weirdest thing that I saw this week. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. If you made it all the way through, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And please be sure to subscribe and tell your friends if you did enjoy it. In the meantime, I'm going to start writing some songs that will eventually turn into the first album of my new garage band, Jewish Space Laser. Have a good one, folks. I'll see you next time.